0: Doubt that we will ever fully appreciate the suffering that our Lord endured on our behalf until we take our last breath on this earth and breathe in that first breath of celestial air. In the moment, in that very moment that we see face to face the one who sacrificed everything that we might stand on heavenly soil and enjoy fellowship with him forever. Perhaps at that moment, perhaps for the first time, we'll really appreciate the death that Jesus Christ died for us. As we gaze upon those nailed, scarred hands and feet, I suspect that we'll be overwhelmed at the immensity and the depth of his sacrifice and of his love. In that instant, what we've, in a sense, known all along, since the moment we trust Jesus Christ In that instant, though, it'll be confirmed. It'll also be confirmed that we're not standing there because of any merit of our own. We're standing there because of the love, the righteousness, and the goodness of the one in whose presence we then find ourselves. He did it all. We appropriate the finished work of Christ on the cross by grace, through faith, apart from works, But we won't be looking at those memorial scars because of anything that we've done. We will be looking at those memorial scars because of what he did. I've often thought that perhaps it's appropriate that Jesus has the only resurrection body with scars. We don't deserve to have scars in heaven. Because nothing that we did in this life, no scars that we endured in this life, put us in the next with him. Only his scars have meaning. Ours are all a distant memory by the time we get to heaven. But his will look upon forever. We'll never forget his scars. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. The most significant event in human history is the death and resurrection of of Jesus of Nazareth. I include both of those, the death and the resurrection, into one event, one singular event, because it is a package deal. You can't separate those two out the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When outlining the gospel that he preached, Paul wrote to the Corinthians For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. While we may not have a full appreciation of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus until we see him in heaven, it's certainly beneficial to spend time considering the death and resurrection of Jesus in the here and now. It is a crucial event, the most crucial event, I would argue, in all of human history. I've titled this series, It Is Finished, which comes from a statement that Jesus makes on the cross just moments before he died. The phrase in the original Greek of John chapter 19, verse 30 is tetelestai, properly pronounced, tetelestai, and it's rich in theological significance. On one level, Jesus is saying that the mission had been accomplished. What he had come to do is now completed. But it's also significant. And that because Jesus' work is completed, there's nothing for us to add to it. So many people worldwide want to say, yes, I have faith in Christ and then fill in the blank. I have faith in Christ and I'm going to join a church. Well, great, I'm glad you joined the church. But joining the church doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. I have faith in Christ, but I'm going to give money. Great, but that has nothing to do with your salvation. Faith alone in Christ alone, not faith plus anything. So there, there's actually a, even a deeper significance to the John 19:30 phrase, to tell us that it is finished, than just simply mission accomplished. He did what he came to do. He did everything that was necessary to be done. And it's an insult when we try to add something to that. Salvation is ours by receiving a free gift paid for, by God himself. You know, sometimes you see this, these ads on TV, you see ads on billboard, free, free, free. Uh, free iPhone, a free iPad, free mattress, free car. They can't do that. Somebody's got to pay for it. If somebody's going to give it to you free, somebody still has to pay for it. Well, I've got to tell you, salvation is really a free offer. And it's a legitimate offer because God already paid for it. I've chosen to pick up the biblical narrative with Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane for this series. I would like to have backed it up further, but for the sake of trying to keep this into four weeks, we'll start with his arrest. But before we get into that specifically, let's consider some of the events that led up to his arrest. First, in Matthew 26, we learn that the Sanhedrin, at the suggestion of the high priest, Caiaphas, at the suggestion of the high priest, had determined to kill Jesus. They hated him. They viewed Jesus, the Jewish leadership viewed Jesus as a threat to them both politically and religiously. The Sadducees, who held the high priesthood at the time of Jesus, they were more of a political party. They viewed Jesus as a threat to them politically because they felt like Jesus was upsetting the political apple cart in Israel at the time. And perhaps if they if he wasn't silenced, if he wasn't shut up, then the Romans might get upset and start a greater oppression. The Pharisees were upset with Jesus for religious reasons. He had kicked their interpretation of the law, Mosaic law, right in the teeth. That wasn't what he had written. After all, it wasn't the Mosaic law. It was the law of God that was given through Moses. Jesus Christ wrote the Mosaic law, and he knew exactly what its intent was. And he knew that the Pharisees had gone way beyond the intent of the Mosaic law, and actually into a false intent. So they were threatened by Jesus for, may I say, religious reason. So they had determined to kill him. Well, Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, enters into, at some point in that time, enters into an arrangement with the high priest to act as Jesus' betrayer. The Sanhedrin actually had decided to postpone Jesus' execution until after the Passover. There were too many people in Jerusalem at the time. Too many witnesses. Too many people that could actually have that fought back against the Sanhedrin. So the original plan was to wait until the Passover was completed before they executed Jesus. And they were continually watching for a way to do it. However, at the Last Supper, Jesus thwarts their plans. And we see even at the Last Supper, watch, this is a key element in today's message, that Jesus is in complete control. He is in complete control of the situation. He never loses control. Even though there are schemes that are going on behind his back, deep conspiracies by powerful people, Jesus has not and will not and will never, he never will lose control of this situation. So in the Last Supper, Judas is sitting next to him. And Jesus confronts Judas in the Last Supper. Matthew 26, verse 25, lets us know that Jesus tells Judas that he's fully aware of the the plot against him. And he's fully aware of Judas' involvement in that plot. Judas then rejects an offer of forgiveness that Jesus extends by offering him a piece of bread. At that point, Satan enters into Judas. He actually possesses Judas. Not a demon possession, but Satan possession. And then Jesus tells Judas, I love this line, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Or to paraphrase, I know it's you. I know it's you that's going to betray me. What are you waiting for? Judas is probably stunned. He shouldn't have been. He had, he had been with Jesus for three years. He had witnessed all these miracles. How he thought he could ever get away with this, I don't know. But he's stunned, and he leaves the upper room at that point and goes to, goes to the priests, who then had to decide whether to, to continue to delay it or to go ahead with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the Passover. They decide to go ahead with it because they realize that their informant has been found out. So uh, they they round up a large group, a large contingent of soldiers. This would imply to me that Pilate had probably already been informed that at some point in time we're going to need a group of men to go after this fellow. Because they wouldn't have been able to, to round up this group of soldiers at that time of night without Pilate's cooperation. So the group of soldiers gathered up by the high priesthood is led by Judas probably first to the upper room. But finding the upper room empty, because Jesus and his disciples had then left to go to Gethsemane, finding the upper room empty, then he leads them to the Garden of Gethsemane. At around 10 or 11 o'clock that night, this is an approximation, but around 10 or 11 o'clock if this was a typical Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples, minus Judas, made their way from the upper room across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. Incidentally, early church history 's tradition is that both the home where the upper room took place, where the upper room is and the last supper took place, and the garden of Gethsemane were likely owned by john Mark's father by john mark 's family, the same one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, then, as you know, spends some time in the Garden of Gethsemane praying that Almost haunting prayer. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he prayed that prayer repeatedly. Sometime after midnight, and again I say these times are approximate, but they're the the best approximation I can make. Sometime after midnight, just as Jesus has finished praying, and he's admonished his disciples for not even being able to stay awake and pray with him during that time. But sometime right after midnight, Judas shows up in the darkness with a large contingent of armed men, heavily armed men. The text tells us that they were armed with swords and clubs, which, which implies that at least as far as they thought, they thought that there would be some resistance. They came with a group that would have been sufficient to arrest a serious, violent criminal. Totally unreasonable. Jesus had never done any violence. He had never advocated any violence. Maybe they thought Jesus' 11 disciples would put up a fight, but they came with an overwhelming force. Again, it's very, very important before we get into this arrest narrative for us to remember and have a hermeneutical overlay over this passage. It's very, very important for us to remember and to observe that throughout this entire process, Jesus is in complete control of the situation. The high priesthood feels like it's in complete control. The Romans, I'm sure, felt like they were in control, being Romans. But neither one of those groups was in control. Jesus is in control of everything that's happening. He is not a passive observer. The Father had made it clear to Jesus in that intimate time in the garden, that passionate time in the garden, where Jesus sweats droplets of blood from his forehead. He's under so much stress the Father had told Jesus in some way that's not recorded that the cup was not going to pass from him and that he would be crucified. So Jesus leaves the garden confident, and as Alfred Edersheim once wrote, with no more blood on the forehead, resolutely determined to fulfill the plan of God. There was no other way to do it. There was no other way to provide for salvation. Also something I want you to keep closely in mind from now till all the way that we get to the resurrection, this is really a matter between God the Father and God the Son. Really always has been, but it is really stressed in the narrative from the arrest on that there are a lot of other people there. In a minute we'll see Peter tries to defend him. Jesus says no. It makes so much sense. Jesus is no to Peter makes so much more sense when we realize that from here on, this is just between the Father and the Son. Yes, the Romans will drive the nails through his hands and his feet, but this is between the Father and the Son because of you and me. This is an intimate moment between Father and Son because of you and me. This is deep. This is incredibly important to every one of our spiritual life because we'll never have the spiritual life that we were designed to have unless we understand this. We've got to start at the beginning and understand what was done for us. Otherwise, we'll have a foundation of sand and we'll never be the servants of the Lord that we were really designed to be. When the mob comes up, so much love what happens here. Jesus doesn't wait for them. You have to remember it's dark. There's no street lights. There are no gas lights or even torch lights out there. The the Romans contingent, along with the Jews that came, this large band of men, had torches with them. But it's dark. The Romans really don't know who Jesus is. That's the whole reason for the betrayal. It's going to be dark. They want to make sure they get the right man. Many people would have turned tail and run at that point. But not Jesus. He resolutely goes out and meets these men. He is not the least bit afraid of them. He is in complete control. He goes out and meets them. So there's no mistake, it's already been planned. Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss, that eternal kiss of betrayal. This is a common form of greeting, was a common form of greeting in the Middle East at the time, still is today. Even between males, a kiss on the cheek. And that's what he does. And as Judas approaches Jesus, Jesus looks him square in the eye and asks him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you're betraying the Son of Man? Once more, Jesus is giving Judas an opportunity to turn away from this. I mean, the rest is going to happen. But Jesus is giving Judas one last opportunity to place his faith in him. No, Judas was not a believer. I wish he was. But the biblical text is clear. He was not. Jesus gave him plenty of opportunities. And I know he, re- he repents with tears later, but he, he never becomes a believer. And he says, friend, do what you're here to do. Okay, Judas, you made your choice. The next time Jesus and Judas will meet, we'll be at the great white throne judgment. Not at the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus wants to protect his disciples, though, because, again, this is between Jesus and his Father. At this point, the disciples' involvement is peripheral. Jesus is going to do what he can to protect his disciples. So he says to the mob, to this group that's come to arrest him, who is it you're looking for? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answers back, that's me. Literally, I am. Then something incredible happens. This mob, this armed mob, standing up in front of an unarmed man who has come out to them and told them who he is. As soon as he says, I am, they fall back on their knees. It's unclear whether this is some sort of miracle or they're just utterly impressed. I would vote for the miracle because the Romans aren't that easily impressed. But they fall down. Jesus is demonstrating that he's in complete control. This will make sense when Peter pulls out the sword in a minute. Remember, Jesus is in control. So once more, he asks, as they're on their knees, who is it you're looking for? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I told you, that's me, Jesus says. If you're after me, then let them go. He's a shepherd to the end. Well, at that point, the guards knew who Jesus was, so they grab him, they arrest him, they bound him. And then Peter, in this token resistance, pulls out a sword, tries to kill Malchus, but he misses and cuts off his ear. And then Jesus touches Malchus's ear and says, That's not what we do, Peter. All who take the sword by the sword will perish. That's no sensible way to proceed under these circumstances, even if it seemed like it was an indication of loyalty to Jesus. Now, I've got to stop here. Because I know many of you are like me. And there's a part of me that admires what Peter did. I have to appreciate it. He's the only one that stood up for his friend. He's the only one. And Peter apparently is willing to die for Jesus right then. they would had that discussion in the upper room, and Jesus has already said, no, you're going to betray me. Peter says, no, I'm going to die for you. No, you're going to betray me. Peter's showing him that I'm not going to betray you. I am going to die for you. And Jesus stops it. Now, why would Jesus stop it? Because it's not about Peter at this point. If all the disciples were armed and put up armed resistance, Jesus would have stopped it. It's not about them. This is between Jesus and his father. Peter's participation is peripheral at this moment. That's why Jesus says, put away that sword. This is not the time. There will be a time when Jesus fights. But it's going to be in the future. And when he fights, there will be no resistance that can stand up against him. But the time is not now. Jesus says, if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels to help me. Now, one angel could have cleaned up the whole mess. You know how much 12 legions is? At full strength. And by the way, Roman legions were seldom at full strength, historically. But at full strength, a Roman legion was 6,000 men. Twelve legions of angels would, if my math is right, be 72,000 men. 72,000 angels, rather. That's massive force. Jesus said, I could do this without you, Peter. What he's saying, this is between me and my father. But it's about you, Peter. I'm doing this for you. It's about you, too. But it's about me. Jesus turns to this mob and he accuses them of cowardice. He tells them, I've taught openly in the temple. You you could have arrested me any time you wanted to. Why are you cowards coming here and arresting me at night in the dark? The answer is they're despicable opportunists. They were terrible people. There's no question about that. They were terrible sinners. These were the kind of people that Jesus was going to die for later. These kind of despicable people. These sinners, these horrible people that Jesus was going to have to hang on the cross were to pay for those sins. Just like you and me. They were despicable. But in God's eyes, no more despicable than the rest of humanity for which Jesus would die. Do you see why we've got to get this? We've got to realize from whence we came, or we're going to never know where we're going. At that point, all the disciples, as had been predicted, all the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. They feared for their lives, probably for good reason. First they wanted Jesus, but then after they had executed Jesus, it's very likely that they would go after the rest. The soldiers don't chase down the group. All of them get away. Two of them will come back. Peter and John will come back. I've taken this walk, personally, from the Garden of Gethsemane to what they think is Caiaphas' house. Archaeologists are not perfectly convinced that that is indeed the home, the one that's excavated. It's about 45 minutes, maybe on a good day, 30 minutes, with the mob at night over rocky soil. It probably took him about 45 minutes to get back to the palace of Caiaphas. I say palace because it was a large dwelling place. And then Jesus is going to go through trials. I'm going to call these the religious trials of Jesus. It's going to take all night. These trials start perhaps at about 1 o'clock in the morning. If If the arrest takes place at around midnight, if they get to Caiaphas' home at around 1 or close to it, then these trials will take place from approximately 1 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock in the morning. And it, they take place in three phases. First is a very short one. Maybe it only lasts about five minutes. It's a trial before Annas. We'll talk about him in a moment. The second trial is one that lasts all night long. This is the trial before Caiaphas, the actual high priest at the time. And then there'll be another short trial right as day is breaking in the morning by the Sanhedrin. First, when Jesus gets to Caiaphas's home, he's not taken to Caiaphas first or to the rest of the Sanhedrin. The first person he's taken to is a man named Annas. Now, Annas was not the official high priest at the time, but he was the power behind the scenes. Apparently, the Romans had removed him from the high priesthood about 15 years before this. For what reason, we don't know. But you see, the Jews considered the high priesthood to be an office for life, something like we do with Supreme Court judges. So in various places in the New Testament, Annas, although he's not the high priest, is still referred to as the high priest because many of the people considered him to be the de facto high priest. No figure is better known in contemporary Jewish history than Annas. He was a bad guy. He was one of the ones that Jesus was striking out against when he cleansed the temple. He abused the people. He was no friend of the people at all. He was feared and actually despised by the common Jew and despised by most of the Pharisees. That's what makes this conspiracy so unique. He had two groups of people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that typically didn't like each other. And actually, the Pharisees despised, in a sense, Annas, but they're all working together in this one. So Annas, who was a Sadducee, was not the high priest, but his son in law, Caiaphas, was. But they take him to Annas. They want to get this past the godfather first, past the political boss. Let's see what he says. Annas asks him basically two questions they ask Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. What Annas wants to know is how big a threat is this man? How many disciples does he have? Is it just these 11? If it's just these 11, then we'd have nothing to worry about. But if there are thousands of them out there, remember this is just shortly after Palm Sunday. If there are thousands of them out there, we've got to do something about this. Well, Jesus answers Annas in a way that Annas doesn't particularly care for. He's not used to being treated this way. But remember, Jesus is in complete control of this situation. He is not ceding control to anybody, including this vermin that he's standing in front of. Jesus says in John chapter 18... Verses 20 and 21, I've always spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why then do you question me? Question those who heard what I spoke to them. They know what I've said. He doesn't answer the question about the disciples. He's protecting them. But he does say, listen, why are you asking me about what I'm teaching? I've taught openly. This was not some sort of secret society. Ask the other people if you want to know. Well, at that point, the violence starts. Some minor official, some minor guard perhaps of Annas, takes exception to this, walks up to Jesus and slaps him right in the face. The violence has started. Totally illegal, by the way. But Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't back down for a moment. He doesn't cower He says, if I've done something wrong, tell me what it is. If I'm wrong, basically, file contempt of court charges against me. Otherwise, why the assault? Here Jesus gives us a glimpse of what it means to turn the other cheek. That's a hard phrase, isn't it? But here he's turning the other cheek. This is illegal and everyone knows it. His challenge is justified. It's righteous. And he has the courage to speak the truth. Even in the most distressing of circumstances, he was no coward. Our Lord was no coward. He's no wimp, and he is not the least bit intimidated by this thug. Annas realizes that this is not going to go anywhere. So he ends that trial. Again, the trial perhaps lasts five minutes. Phase one is finished. And so he sends him over to Caiaphas. Caiaphas. If Jesus is going to be brought before Pilate later in the day, and that's the plan, the Romans have to kill him. They couldn't kill him legally. Then Caiaphas is the one who is, in his capacity, as chairman of the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas is the one that actually has to bring the formal charge. John noted that during all this time, Jesus is bound as a criminal, even though he had done nothing to warrant the physical restraint. He had not resisted arrest. In fact, he went with them. He went out to them. The violence is started, which was illegal. The trial is held at night, which is illegal. In Jewish trials, in order for them to be legal, according to the Mishnah, a document that was compiled later, but about this time, about regarding this time in history, all, all trials of, of, of a capital nature had to be held during the daytime. There had to be at least 24 hours between the time of the trial and the time that the verdict was given. The person in charge of the trial, what we might call the judge, is never to give their opinion about guilt or innocence until after everybody else is ruled, so as not to unduly influence. These and many, many other things make this trial totally illegal. But Jesus is not intimidated by the illegalities. He's still in charge. So they take him to Caiaphas, probably shortly after 1 o'clock in the morning, and they conduct this trial this kangaroo court, this sham, all night long. And all night long they're trying to get two witnesses, because the Mosaic law, right, said they had to have two witnesses, perhaps even three, that would all say the same thing about this man so that they could find some reason to get rid of him. It's interesting to me that people who are this despicable still try to obey a moral law. All night long Jesus is sometimes standing there, perhaps other times in a holding cell, undergoing violence, and all night long people come one after one and they come before the Sanhedrin and there's an attempt made to form an indictment against them. They can't do it. They cannot do it. All night long they can't get two people to come up with the same claim. Makes sense because there wasn't a legitimate claim. Archaeologists have discovered in the floor of what they think to be Caiaphas' home, a hole. If you go down through that hole, there is a, a room with no doors, and it is possible, although we wouldn't die for this, this is not biblical, this is archeological, it's possible during that time, during those hours of Jesus' trial, while he's being falsely accused, but they can't get anybody to get it right, that he was upstairs for a while, and at all, also at times he may have been let, let down by a rope into that room. We don't know for sure. Again, that's archeology, span that's not the Bible. But it's possible that that's what happened to Jesus. We also know that at other times during this trial, he was probably in that courtyard somewhere, under guard, because this is the time that Peter denies him. And upon the last denial, the text tells us that Jesus looked over at Peter. They were able to see eye to eye at that point. Jesus is falsely accused all night long. Finally, They find two people who can get together and come up with a singular story where they say Jesus said that I'll tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, it's clear. John tells us that he was talking about the temple of his body, but they twisted it around, so two people agreed on that. know Caiaphas, he must have been quite relieved at that point. He's been sitting there all night. You can almost picture him back in his chair thinking, when are we going to get this done? It's going to be daylight soon, and we have got to have this man dead. Before everybody wakes up. We have to have him gone, dead. I want all his disciples scattered. I want this finished by morning. So when two people finally said, yeah, he said he could tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days, Caiaphas must have jumped up and accuses him of blasphemy at that point. Mark tells us, Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple. And in three days, we'll build another not made by man. Yet, even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. He's in complete control of this situation. Again, the high priest probes him and said, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus answered very simply, just like he did in the arrest. I am. I am. Yes. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh, at this point, the high priest can't take it anymore. He stands up and he tears his clothes. That's another illegality, by the way, in the trial. Compared to the other ones, it's a minor one. he stands and he tears his clothes and he said, why do we need any more witnesses? Look, we've got him. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Under Jewish law, blasphemy is punishable by death. The Romans couldn't care less about Jewish blasphemy. They're not going to execute Jesus because he was blasphemous. But this is the indictment against Jesus by the Jews. That he is blasphemous. Why? Because he's claiming that he's the Messiah, he's claiming deity. It's puzzling to me sometimes how people can come to my door or write things on the internet and challenge the deity of Christ. It's happened all the way back. The Arian heresy goes way, way back. The Jews knew full well what Jesus was claiming. Some people said, "We well, he never claimed to be the Messiah. He never claimed to be God. That was just what his disciples claimed. Jesus claimed it for himself, and that's why the Jews indicted him and brought him over to Pilate. They're going to change the indictment. They understood that he was claiming to be God, even if some of the people that come to our door do not. Well, they all thought he was worthy of death at that point. And then the bad stuff really, really starts. Once he's condemned... The Jewish guard, now this isn't the Roman guard, the Jewish guard comes up and begins to spit in his face. The Messiah, the one that will die for them shortly, has his face spat upon. They blindfold him, and they strike him repeatedly over and over again and say, prophesy who it was that just hit you. Tell me if you know. This is beyond terrible. But this is part of what Jesus went through for you and for me. Yes, I know it was those three hours on the cross where he actually had the sins of the world imputed to him and judged. But don't shortchange what he went through in those steps that got him to the cross. This is what he did for you and for me. If it's me, you don't have any salvation and neither do I. Because if I had the power that Jesus had and somebody spat in my face... I might could have gotten over it, but if they had blindfolded me and punched me and ridiculed me that way, it's over. And the same could be said, I think for almost everybody here, none of us could have done this. But he did it because he loved you. The next time you doubt that anybody loves you, you remember this. You remember what he went through repeatedly over and over and over again. He was brutalized physically before he ever got to the cross By his Jewish brethren, brutally. Somebody surely told Caiaphas, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, Hey, listen, you know what we just did is illegal. We got to come up with some verdict in the daytime. We can't just have a verdict that's at night. People might come back on us for this. Caiaphas realizes that, and so he tries to gather the entire Sanhedrin together. They move to the temple area. It's still early. It's still probably sometime before 6 that they move him. So the streets are quiet. They don't have the threat of a rebellion against them just just yet. The plan is still progressing. They move him to the temple area, and they have a very, very short trial. Luke describes it this way. At daybreak, the council of the elders and the people, both the chief priest and the teacher of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. Now, they ask him just one question. They've already got their verdict. They already know what what it's going to be. They just want to try to make it look legal. If you are the Christ, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, what, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying that I am. Yes, I am. Remember, he says this through bloodied lips by now. Through eyes that were, I'm sure, almost closed with swelling. Then they said, What do we have, what do we need any more testimony for? We've heard it from his own lips. It's now about six in the morning, shortly before daylight, or just as the dawn is breaking. Jesus is in the temple. And he's telling him, yes, I'm the Shekinah Glory. I'm what left here a long time ago. So Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. He claimed to be God. So he was guilty of blasphemy, unless he was. And he was God. He's undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. Somebody that loved you with a love that is so deep and so indescribable that he left the comforts of heaven to pay a debt that he didn't know because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. That's Jesus of Nazareth. He died. He was brutalized for you and for me. Never, ever forget that.